This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Louis Menand about his new and formidable book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. Your book, Louis, 727 pages long, buttressed by another 84 pages of notes, is a mighty fortress of learning, but it is also a joy to read. I wish we had world enough and time for the truth told and the beauty found on every page. But the book doesn't lend itself to short form synthesis or exposition. And so perhaps you can begin with your own preface, why you chose to concentrate on the years 1945-1975, how you approach the writing of history, and by asking yourself the question, what is freedom? Trying to figure out what realistically freedom maybe means. Thank you, Lewis. I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. Uh, I wrote it for lots of different reasons, but what drew me to this period, which is really the first 20 years after the end of the Second World War, was that it's a period when the United States was actively engaged with the rest of the world. That was our policy. We invested in the economic recovery of Western Europe and Japan. We extended loans to countries around the world. With the United Kingdom, we created the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to support global political stability and international trade. We hosted the United Nations. And through the government, through, its, through our philanthropical foundations and our cultural institutions, we established exchange programs for artists and scholars around the world, and we distributed literature, art, and music globally. We also welcomed art and ideas, and literature, and popular culture from other countries. We, tra- put, we translated works of literature and philosophy and distributed them widely. We imported foreign movies, and they were seen across the country. There's a period of great prosperity in the U.S. as well as in most other countries in the world. Um, the income gap between the wealthiest earners and the middle class was the smallest in history. The ideological differences between the political parties were minimal, which enabled the government to engage in social programs. Um, and as these material conditions and social conditions changed, so did art and ideas. New technology of reproduction, of distribution, speeded up the rate of innovation. There was international trade, which was accompanied by the circulation of art and ideas around the world. And the result was a period of enormous creativity in the United States in particular, which became from being more or less a provincial cultural backwater before 1945, came to have a central role in the global uh, production of art and ideas. So the reason the book is difficult to sum up is because to tell this story involves so many different figures and so many different artistic forms that I had to figure out a way to divide it up so that I could really present everything in its fullest form. 
So I talk about philosophy, talk about political theory, I write about art and music, the avant-garde, popular music, existentialism, um, all the things that became part of the cultural mix in this period. You also say that it's a period where people cared and ideas mattered, movies mattered, poetry mattered, people believed in liberty and thought it meant something. They believed in authenticity and thought it meant something and democracy also meant something. And they're eager for a new beginning and a, and a fresh start. And so along those lines, I, I, I understand that you write the book in terms of verticals. I mean, veering off in, in, in many different directions, music, painting, poetry, political theory, politics, and so on. But it strikes me as, as sort of the central spine, the central vertical is the one you call concepts of liberty, which goes to your theme, freedom. And, and all your chapters touch in one way or another on freedom struggling against uh, restraint. And so maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about the concepts of liberty and Isaiah Berlin. Oh, yeah. Well, to your first point, the striking thing about this period from our point of view, probably, is how seriously important people thought matters of art and taste were. It mattered what kind of painting you did. It mattered how you interpreted painting, poetry, music. It mattered what kind of movies you liked. It mattered what kind of political theory you adopted, because all these things were taken to have some existential significance. So it's exciting to read, even though we may disagree with a lot of these figures, it's exciting to read about a period in which they thought a lot was at stake in questions about art and ideas. The concept that central for everything in this period, as you just said, is this concept of liberty or freedom. And that's not something I started out assuming when I began writing the book, but I, as I wrote, I discovered that almost every subject I picked up at the center of it was this idea of freedom. Now, from one point of view, that's just the slogan of the free world, right? That's the slogan of the United States and the liberal democracies in the Cold War against Soviet communism, Chinese communism, but it's also used for all kinds of things that have nothing to do with geopolitics to justify certain kinds of artistic methods and certain ways of interpreting art. It's used so much that it, it, it threatens to become meaningless. Everybody uses it. Martin Luther King Jr. used it. He, there's more references to freedom than to equality in his speeches because he knew that freedom was the word that was politically potent in that period. But George Wallace used it for, as well in his segregationist speeches. Everybody uses it. So what a question that you have to ask yourself when you're studying this period is what, is, what does it really mean? And that's an interesting philosophical question. What does it mean to say that we're free? We're not ever completely free. What are we free from? What are the conditions that determine our feeling that we're free? 
and that's something that comes up uh, c- continually in the period. It's a conundrum, I would say, that these figures are all wrestling with at one level of consciousness or another. The figure who you mentioned, Isaiah Berlin, uh, who whose work on this was probably the most influential philosophically in this period, wrote an essay called Concepts of Liberty, which I think was published in 1958, uh, in Two Concepts of Liberty, in which he discussed what he called liberty, freedom from and freedom for. So on Berlin's analysis, freedom from is the freedom from being constrained by others. Freedom for is freedom for a particular end, which may not be in itself freedom, but something else. I think what is at the bottom of Berlin's two concepts is the competition between the values of freedom and equality. And in a way, those are the values of liberal democracy and capitalism versus socialism. And Berlin's argument was that if you want more freedom, you're going to give up some equality and vice versa. So he was trying to grasp the nettle of that concept. Berlin was on the side of freedom. Berlin was on the side of freedom from. He didn't think anybody should be told what to do with their freedom, but they that, but that, that should have freedom to pursue the ends that they chose. But other people disagreed, of course, because other people thought that freedom from is meaningless unless there is equality for everybody. If everybody has freedom from the same things, then you have equality of condition. So that's an issue that becomes important in the 1960s. It's, it's still important today. I mean, it's, it's a lot of the... It's at the basis of the arguments about Black Lives Matter and the substitution of the word equity, and it's also at the root of uh, Biden's uh, $2 trillion restructure bill. Yeah, that's right. It is. Because because just, just liberty doesn't sort things out the way you want them. You have to do something. And um, liberty is liberty is liberty. Yeah, it's not another thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as Berlin says. That's right. So a lot of these issues are interestingly relevant today, um, particularly in the last year or two. Uh, so that's another reason why it's, it's, it's fascinating to go back and look at these arguments from 50 and 60 years ago, because a lot of them, as you point out, are still, still very much with us. Yeah, I mean, we haven't resolved. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think. I mean, yeah. well, talk, talk a little bit about... George Kennan. I mean, you begin the book with Kennan, and and then you bring him back in the end. And, and so Kennan is obviously a place to start when you're talking about the Cold War because he really um, created the foreign policy that the United States pursued, at least ostensibly, for 20 years, and that was the policy of containment. So Kennan was interesting character because he actually didn't have a great deal of faith in American democracy himself. He didn't like American culture much. He identified with Germany and Russia, interestingly, of all countries. Um, and he loved the Russian people, but he hated uh, the Kremlin. He didn't care about Marxism or communism. He just thought that they were a brutal dictatorship. Uh, so in the period of the war, of course, the United States and the Soviet Union were allies after 1942, and uh, the 
policy of the federal government was to be conciliatory towards Stalin because we needed the Red Army to defeat the Wehrmacht. Um, when that happened in summer of 1945, it became clear that the United States and the Soviet Union were on divergent post-war paths. And it fell to Kennan to articulate a policy for dealing with Stalin. And he did so in two documents. Uh, one in 1946, of course, known as the Long Telegram, which is the first articulation of the doctrine of containment. And then a year later, after he returned to Washington, uh, he published an article in uh, Foreign Affairs called uh, Sources of Soviet Conduct, and so he, which he basically repeated what he said in the Long Telegram. So Kennan's argument was that the Soviet Union is just not going to cooperate with the United States. We should stop pretending that we can talk Turkey to Stalin. He's going to be antagonistic to us because he's going to represent Soviet national interests. And what we should do is the same thing. We just worry about our own national interests, not worried about some kind of compromise with Stalin because that's not going to happen. If we do this, if we keep Soviet communism in its box, it will self-destruct of its own inefficiencies in the long run. In the short run, though, we don't need to drop the bomb on them. So he was hawkish to the extent that he didn't imagine any kind of uh, modus vivendi between American government and the Kremlin, uh, but he was not hawkish to the extent that he wanted to drop the bomb or start military conflict. So he seems to have imagined the policy of containment as a non-military policy in which the United States just pushed, pushed back at any point at which it seemed as though the Soviets were trying to expand. So he begins the book because this more or less is the American policy. Now, there's a lot of liberationist talk and talk of rollback, and there's a huge arms race and military buildup and, and so on. So it's not, it's not all canon. But, but that is essentially the core of the American policy. And then he ends the book because in 1965, the United States began to intervene militarily in South Vietnam. And the question was, is this a policy dictated by the doctrine of containment? If the policy of containment tells us that we have to resist Soviet expansion at any point on a globe where it seems to be occurring, would that not account in Vietnam, when the, in which the North Vietnamese were seemed to be pushing below the 17th parallel into South Vietnam? Shouldn't we resist that? So Kennedy was called before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to testify in 1966, and he he said that the doctrine of containment did not extend to Vietnam. Now, part of the reason he said that is because he didn't care about Southeast Asia. He didn't think there was, there was anything at stake there. So to him, to lose South Vietnamese to communism was not, was not a big deal. If it had been happening in Western Europe, he probably would have had a different view. But in a way, Vietnam was the crisis of containment theory. Um, so that's, that seemed to me the, a good point to end my story. Right, and it's also... It fits to your theme about trading places and reversals. In, in other words, in 1945, America is dominant in the world. And I mean, moral, intellectual, no, not intellectual, moral, economic, and military. And, the, um, and it's thought to be sort of provincial in terms of its arts. But at the end of the period, it becomes the center of, of the arts. It takes over the 
position from Paris, but meanwhile loses because of Vietnam, uh, as Kennan says in 1966, it, it does inescapable damage to America's standing as a uh, moral uh, force. Yeah. Yeah, 1945, there was, of course, there were many critics of American culture and American policy, but in 1945, there's a general feeling that the United States, by virtue of its power and its wealth, uh, was a force for good in the world or could be a force for good in the world. It gave us a huge amount of political authority or political credibility. And what I suggest is that we burned that through in Vietnam. We lost all of that. Yeah. Uh, and we came, we emerged from that in 1973 when we finally pulled out. People looked upon us as an imperialist and racist power. But at the same time, um, we acquired cultural capital, which we didn't have in 1945. So that's the interesting reversal that you're referring to, and that's the trajectory that the book tries to capture. Well, it, it catch, captures it uh, magnificently. I mean, who are... Talk about some of the other figures whom you find. The wonderful thing about your book is you're not making judgments. You're not making, you know, is this work of art great or not great or so on. You're, you're not a polemicist and you're not a moralist. And thank God you're not an inspector of souls. But the, the, uh, <laughs> the, I, wouldn't, but, I wouldn't know how to do that. <laughs> no, I don't either. The, the, but the, so, so the figures that you talk about are the ones whose books or whose example uh, have poured energy in, in, into the uh, excitement of the period. So talk about maybe whomever you choose to, but what do you, George Orwell yeah. would certainly be one of yeah. them. Orwell, yeah. Well, uh, thank you for saying that because I think my job is to help people think, but it's not to tell them what to think. I just try to explain things so that things might be a little bit clearer to people. In terms of the, so I very, I'm very biographically oriented as an historian because I think that cultural history or intellectual history involves the intersection between some kind of talent or ability, gift that individuals may have, and a moment that calls for that and allows them to fulfill it. And so that intersection is what, I'm, what I try to capture when I tell these stories. And so the book has a lot of leading figures from uh, from Cannon and Orwell to Susan Sontag and Pauline Kael. And the, those are sort of the tent poles, as it were, of my uh, analyses. I love all my characters. <laughs> I know you do. That, that, that's, uh, yeah. that's what makes the book so, so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Because just, that comes through. When you, yeah. yeah, thank you. When you, when you're studying James Baldwin, for example, who's a very, very tricky character, when you spend a lot of time with them, you feel, oh, I understand this guy now. I understand this person now. And you you appreciate what, what they were able to do with what they had. And you nothing things may not have worked out. As for Baldwin, they kind of didn't in the 1960s. But, but you sympathize with them and you feel, yeah, I know, I know what that person was trying to do and I kind of get it. it. 
it, that's the work of historical research is sort of getting inside the people. And then when you do, they're sort of like your own children in a weird way, which you want, you want the best for them. So I would say if the people who I worked on, I could name almost any of them, but I think the, of the people I worked on who I thought really repaid spending time with and in which my understanding of what they were doing really was transformed. One of them was Jackson Pollock. So Pollock figures all the time, of course, in histories of this period, partly because I think there's a version of Cold War history, which I think is mistaken, in which abstract expressionism, the art movement that Pollock is associated with, was used as an instrument of foreign policy to kind of promote American cultural hegemony. I, I think that's mistaken, but he is obviously a major figure. So what's interesting about many interesting things about Pollock, one of them is that the paintings that he made that he's famous for, the drip paintings, were all made in a period of about three and a half years. So he had struggled for a long time since the 1930s when he came to New York from L.A. Uh, to, to make his name in the fine art world, particularly at a time when there was very little interest in contemporary American painting. Most people who were interested in art interested in European art. Um, and he had various stylistic log jams that he got caught up in. And when you look at early Pollocks, they look kind of muddy and there's a lot of Jungian archetypal symbolism and stuff in them. They don't seem very effective. And then he got married to Lee Krasner, who's also an important artist. And they moved to a town in the Hamptons called Springs. And they bought this house and the house was too small to stretch a canvas in. So Pollock put his canvas on the floor and he started throwing paint on it, but sometimes with a brush, sometimes with a stick. And then they converted the, a barn on the property into a studio and he moved in there, but he continued to paint on the floor. And the art critic Clement Greenberg, who'd been a friend of Krasner's, would visit them and he would encourage Pollock to do these paintings. So between 1947 and 1950, he made these incredible paintings. And what's interesting on the one hand is that who knew that Pollock was really, really good at this? I mean, they're inimitable paintings. They, it looks easy, but try it. They're impossible to make. But he was, this is what he had a gift for, of throwing paint and producing these unbelievably beautiful canvases. They're just incredibly beautiful. And that just made it possible for him to just produce and produce and produce all this work. He stopped drinking quite as much as he had been drinking. It came to an end in 1950, went off the wagon, he stopped doing the drip paintings and so forth. But in that, that period, he created this unbelievable work. So the work itself, obviously, is influential, the drip paintings, that kind of abstraction, the whole idea of taking the painting off the easel and putting it on the floor, all that, that's very radical. But what turned out to be the most influential thing that Pollock did was that he danced around the canvas when he threw paint on it. And he made the act of painting into the part of the work of art. So these dances were recorded by photographers, they were filmed, people saw them, pictures of them in Life magazine, and that became the legacy of Pollock as an artist who himself, as a figure, as a person, as a body, was part of the artwork. And that had a big influence on happenings, on performance art, conceptual art, even feminist art in the 1970s, and people referred to Pollock as an inspiration. So... On the one hand, here's this incredibly powerful moment in the history of art 
or a certain kind of work gets produced that has enormous ramifications for the next 20 or 30 years in the art world. And second, it's completely unpremeditated. Nobody said, okay, I bet if you put the canvas on the floor and throw paint on it, that might be a good thing to do. It just happened. Um, so a lot of these things are like that. A lot of these things are moments when the artist more or less accidentally or serendipitously breaks through to something that's new. Another famous example of is Elvis Presley. So the famous story is that Elvis Presley was a young ballad singer in Memphis. He got called into a recording studio owned by a man named Sam Phillips, Sun Records, Sun, Sun Recording Studio, label was Sun Records, put together with a couple of musicians that he didn't really know, and they tried to record a song. And they spent the whole evening trying to record ballads and country songs and things like that. Nothing worked. And Elvis, they were all ready to go home. Elvis picks up the microphone and he starts singing this rhythm and blues song, That's All Right Mama, as a joke. And the musicians start playing along. And Sam Phillips comes out of the control room and he says, start all over again. So they play the whole song through. They cut a record. It's Elvis Presley's first rock and roll record. Elvis Presley had no idea he was making rock and roll. He'd never sung a rhythm and blues song before in his life. He was a ballad singer. He sang gospel. But that was a total breakthrough in popular music. So it's, it's very interesting to go back and see what it was that just tipped things over from being nothing to something. Um, and that's kind of how cultural history works. Along those same lines, uh, talk the story about... Uh, the entrance of Martin Luther King, his yeah. first speech. Yeah. So the first speech that King gave, uh, civil rights speech that King gave, was in Montgomery, Alabama, on the eve before the start of the Montgomery bus boycott. This is 1954 or 55. And he was just a preacher at his own congregation in Montgomery, and, and he – was involved in a meeting of a group of black leaders in Montgomery called the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was planning the boycott. And he was very ambivalent, King, about the boycott because he felt that it was answering evil with evil and that it would deprive the bus drivers of their work and also inconvenience passengers who required buses to get to their jobs. So he wasn't at all sure that this was a righteous thing to do, the boycott. But he was convinced, ultimately convinced himself, that they were protesting an evil system and this was the right way for black citizens to do it. So to his surprise, he was elected president of the Montgomery Improvement Association because no other black leader wanted to be in that position. Um, he was very, I can't remember how old he was, 26 or something. And he said, they said, you have to come to the rally tonight at this Baptist, Dexter Street Baptist Church. I think it was Dexter Street Baptist Church and Montgomery and address the men and women who will lead the boycott tomorrow. He goes home. King normally took like a whole day to write a sermon and he has to write a speech in 15 minutes. He wasted 10 minutes having a panic attack. He gets in the car. He drives to the church. It's so crowded with people wanting to hear him speak that he has to get out of his car a block ahead of the church and walk to the church. It's filled with people. People are outside listening. It, the whole speech is taped, by the way. You can, you can easily find it on YouTube. And he gives this incredible speech in which the great line to the protesters is, if we are wrong, 
and God Almighty is wrong. And you could hear the response of the crowd to every line. He's a call and response preacher to begin with. You can hear the response that he's whipping up the crowd. It's incredible. It's like a moral pep rally. And he must have realized when he stepped down from the pulpit after giving this incredible speech, this was his mission. This is what God wanted him to do. And that's all he did uh, until 13 years later, whatever, when he was killed. Um, and that's, a, that's also an incredible moment that the, the movement found this person who wasn't at all convinced this is what he wanted to do with his career. He wanted to be an academic. Uh, and he rose to the, rose to the occasion. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that you say that art making is a short term enterprise. I mean, it, it, you know, it almost comes out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speak. Well, what about, what about Kerouac? I mean, that's another f person for whom you yeah. have affection. And you, you think, you think of him as a, mystic and uh, vulnerable yeah. as opposed to his reputation as a hard-ass criminal outlaw. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love, I mean, I love all these characters, but you're Kerouac too. Ka yeah, Kerouac just really was a case where he, what, what, the, what, the, what the culture wanted to take him for and what he was, there was an enormous discrepancy. Kerouac, the thing about Kerouac and Ginsburg and, and William Burroughs, who were the leading beat figures, who were all friends when they were young in New York, is that they were very serious people. They were extremely well-read people. They were highly educated people. They had real literary aspirations. They read Proust and Dostoevsky and Rambeau. Uh, they weren't just hustlers or hipsters. They associated themselves with hustlers and hipsters because they were slumming. That was sort of their material. But they themselves were, were very educated people. So the whole idea of beat is kind of untutored, unmediated, yappy kind of stuff is just completely mistaken about what they at least thought that they were doing. In Kerouac's case, he was a complete graphomaniac. I mean, the guy, I think he wrote 30 books and he died in his 40s. And he also kept journals, wrote letters. He seems to have written all the time. He's an incredible writer. He's very purple stuff, uh, not to everybody's taste, but he's a beautiful writer. And the On the Road is a very sad and beautiful book, I think. It's not at all about searching for kicks. That just If you read the book, you can tell that's not what it's really about. But that's how it got taken. It didn't help that Kerouac looked like a cool guy. <laughs> he looked like a hipster. He's very handsome. And he had a kind of nonchalant manner that looked cool. Um, but he really was a sufferer. He was a Catholic. His, you know, his parents were French Canadian, and he, you know, he looked upon his work as a kind of mysticism. He became a Buddhist, and that's what he was trying to express. So, when the On the Road was received, it got a rave review in the New York Times, the Daily New York Times, which is really what launched it. When it came out in uh, 1956, 1957, I'm sorry. Kerouac, because of his looks, became the figure of the hipster. Then he had to live with that for the rest of his life, even though he hated that association. And in a way, I think he was always an alcoholic, but I think his alcoholism really was a kind of self-destruction. All right, let me let me ask you, you know, to make a a shy at a conclusion to this conversation, right? I mean, I, I was one of my favorite reviews by Bernard Shaw of a British choral group who said that 
he can only discuss the choral groups shy at the mass in B minor. <laughs> so assume that your book is the mass in B minor. <laughs> I mean, how many of the ideas, of the how much of the world of art and thought in those years, 1945, 1965, are still uh, with us in 2021. Yeah, I, I mean, as that's a this is very speculative, Eric. Yes, but, I, I know it is. But, yeah. yeah, but I would say, by the time you get to 1965, this whole cultural world is very recognizable to us. This is more yeah. or less the world that we still live in now. Obviously, it's been changed by digital revolution and a million other things. But basically, where sort of educated thought is about art, literature, and ideas is rough, roughly where it is today. And it is interesting to look back on a period of in which America was so active in the world in which so many influences from around the world were taken up here and helped transform our own culture from, from this recent period of I would say neo-isolationism, nativism, and nationalism, and to see whether that's going to be just a blip in which we revert to our better selves, what I would take to be our better selves as our international selves, or whether that's kind of where the polity has headed. Um, but right now, it feels like a lot of these questions, particularly the political ones that we were talking about earlier, about liberty and equality, are still very relevant to us. You know, I you don't look at the past for lessons because history doesn't repeat itself. But you could look at the past for inspiration. That's always a good thing. I think so, because I, I, I think that, as Faulkner once said, uh, the past is never dead. It's not even past, right? I mean, it, it, I mean, history approached the way you approach it is the past living in the present and the present living in the past. I mean, that's how I read your book and that's why I find it such a wonder to behold and thank you Louis Manan for speaking with us today about your new book The Free World Art and Thought in the Cold War Thank you Louis Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.